Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So breaking news, Trump is apparently going all the way to the top when it comes to that FBI search of Mar-a-Lago. The lead starts now. Just coming in. Donald Trump asking the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene in the case of those classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago estate. Plus, the damage is so bad Florida authorities can barely make out where property is, let alone search the property. And rescue missions are now recovery missions. Six days after Ian, crews cannot confirm who's still missing and who might be alive, with food now being airdropped to areas cut off by the storm. And secret plans by the Oath Keepers exposed. Audio recordings of the far-right militia group played in court, revealing what prosecutors call a plot to reverse the will of the American people and keep Trump in office using force. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin with that breaking news. President Trump asking the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene over the seizure by the FBI of documents from his home at Mar-a-Lago, the latest shocking development in this legal battle after FBI agents searched his home in August and seized more than 100 classified documents. Trump's request is to ask the Supreme Court to reverse the 11th Circuit Court ruling. That ruling, of course, gave the Justice Department access to review those classified documents recovered from Trump's Florida estate Trump's request, the latest example of the president seeking to involve the nation's highest court in investigations into him in order to stop them. Let's bring in CNN's Jessica Schneider, as well as Joan Biskupic. Jessica, what do we know about the president's filing here? Well, we know that the president pretty much lost about two weeks ago in the 11th Circuit when they overturned part of the district court's order. So now what he's doing is he's going to the Supreme Court on appeal here, but he's doing it on a very limited basis. He's asking the Supreme Court to only vacate part of what the 11th Circuit said because he wants the special master to continue reviewing those 100 classified documents. That's pretty much all that's at stake in this appeal. He's telling the Supreme Court, we want the special master to be given the ability to review these 100 documents that are classified, something that the 11th Circuit took the power away from the special master about two weeks ago from doing. So it is very limited. The the lawyers for Donald Trump here are saying that the 11th Circuit never even had the power to review this district court order as to this particular issue. So now they're asking the Supreme Court to step in here. Um, It really was Donald Trump's last breath of hope here, and he's doing it on a very limited basis in the hope that the Supreme Court will take his side and once again allow the special master's review to continue. I mean, he said that, you know, this, this should be vacated, what the 11th Circuit did, because it impairs substantially the ongoing time sensitive work of the special master. Because remember, the special master only has a limited amount of time. I think it was just extended to into December. They want the special master to be able to get his hands on the classified documents, something he can't now do. Joan, do you think the Supreme Court has any desire to get involved in this? Actually, no, Jake, just in terms of the atmospherics. You know, the opening line of Donald Trump's application here to the Supreme Court refers to the administration of his political rival. He puts the politics on the table right away. 
And it's like just two days ago, we had this long conversation about the court trying to regain its legitimacy, not wanting to be embroiled in politics. So you've got that atmosphere here for starters. But let me just talk about the mechanics of what we will see next. I think they probably wouldn't want to go in at this point. But, you know, this is still a legitimate request that the former president has made. The justices are likely over the next couple hours or day to ask the Justice Department to respond. What does it say to this request, even though it's limited? And then it takes five votes to grant the request. Now, there is a conservative supermajority on this court, but do they want to weigh in at this point? Do they want to? There are so many other parts of this story that are still developing in the 11th Circuit and with the special master. So would they come in? I think it's an open question. I really think at this time, when they're starting their own term, dealing with cases like voting rights that they heard today, do they want Donald Trump back on their doorstep? doorstep? Likely not, but that's not what it'll come down to. It will come down to whether they think leaving this, if if they don't intervene in any way, will there be harm? Will there be legitimate harm that they should offset? Is this unprecedented? Well, remember the last time Donald Trump went to the Supreme Court? It was just earlier this year when he wanted to block some of his White House records from going to the January 6th Select Committee. In that case, the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to step in here. We're not going to overturn what the lower court decided. So it could be a similar short and sweet order that we get from the court saying, no, we're not going to step in at this point. That's pretty much what they did when we saw an appeal from Donald Trump several months Months ago. Uh, so that might be how it plays out. It could play out that way. We have to see, first of all, what we get from, back from the Justice Department and then a final response from the Trump administration. And, you know, maybe this could all be over by the end of the week. Right. We just don't know yet, given, given this court and given these arguments. In terms of previous fights between presidents and other branches of government, Nixon took it to the Supreme Court to not have to, to overturn the tapes, right? I mean, that was, and the court ruled against him. I'm not sure. Did Bill Clinton's material, did his challenges ever get to? Well, we had the Paula Jones. Remember? Right. Did that yeah. go up to the U.S. Supreme Court? Yes. Okay. Yes. And the Supreme Court ruled against Bill Clinton in the Paula Jones case, allowed, you know, allowed things to go forward for his, in the civil suit. This is so granular. This is this is not of that magnitude in any way at this point. But it's still because it's Donald Trump who is just not going away. And at this time, when everything is so polarized, it is a larger deal, even though, Jake, I would never compare it to the tapes case. Uh, Although, you know, we do have national security interests here, but the tapes case and the Paula Jones, Bill Clinton case are of a different magnitude. Can I just say, there are probably skeptics out there who hear you saying, I don't think the court wants to intervene in this politically and think, this court's doing whatever the hell it wants to do. Well, and, and they would be right to counter me on that. Okay. You know? <laughs> All right, Jessica Schneider and Joan Biskupik, thanks to both of you. Well, let's bring in uh, Ellie Honig. He was the assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Ellie, uh, what is Trump's argument here? Two primary arguments here. The first one is sort of procedural and jurisdictional. He says that the ruling from the district court establishing the special master, that was not a final ruling of a court. That was not a this side wins or that side wins. And so they argue that the appeal was what we call an interlocutory appeal, meaning an appeal while the game is in progress, essentially. And therefore, Donald Trump is arguing to the Supreme Court. The Court of Appeals never should have heard this in the first place. The second thing Donald Trump is arguing is that the district court judge, Judge Cannon, who established the special master, that was within her discretion and that she did not overstep her discretion and abuse her power in ordering the special master. So the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals got it wrong. So those are the two main arguments Trump makes in his brief. 
How long? So Joan said that probably over the next day, they will ask the Justice Department to respond. Uh, and then the question becomes for the court uh, to, to decide whether there are five of them, five justices, who want to take up this case. How long is this whole thing going to take uh, just before we find out whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court is going to, going to take the case? Well, Joan's right, of course. This will move quickly. This will be a matter of days or maybe weeks at the most. It's important to understand we're in what sometimes is called the shadow docket here. This is the emergency application for relief. This isn't the standard sort of Supreme Court briefing on full cases that we're seeing starting this week where the parties get months and months in which to submit their briefs and then another few months pass and then there's this sort of grand ceremonial argument in front of the court and then we wait until the spring or summer for ruling. That is the normal full merits docket. Here we are on the emergency docket, the shadow docket. So things will move much more quickly here than we're used to. Does Trump have legal ground to stand on here? Well, he has reasonable arguments that he makes in the brief. I think his jurisdictional argument is a decent one. And I think he has a fair argument, again, that the district court judge, maybe a person can agree with her or disagree with her, but she was within her broad discretion as a trial court judge to appoint a special master. I agree with Joan. My instinct is it's more unlikely that the Supreme Court touches this than likely. I would I would be surprised if the Supreme Court takes it up. It's politically fraught. They don't always rule in Donald Trump's favor. Yes, they've been unpredictable, but they've also denied Donald Trump many times over when it comes to his tax returns, uh, when it comes to his election challenges, and as Joan just said on the National Archives executive privilege case. So it would surprise me a bit if the Supreme Court takes this case up, but it will be up to them. Do they have the five votes for it is really the question. As a bit of lawyering, what do you think uh, of what Trump's lawyers uh, filed? The reason I ask is because uh, former President Trump has uh, run the gamut when it comes to quality of attorney uh, throughout uh, his <laughs> career, uh, throughout his time as an adult. Uh, he has had some of the most embarrassing ambulance chasers uh, and conspiracy theorists <laughs> that, that live. Uh, and he has also had some very impressive uh, litigators. What, what, do you, what do you make of this argument? Well, I did take a look at the brief just now, Jake, and, and it's a decently well done brief. It's not one of the more embarrassing pieces of legal work that have been submitted uh, on Donald Trump's behalf. But I think if you're laying out for your client, whether it's Donald Trump or anyone else, the way you phrase it is this, you've lost. You lost at the 11th Circuit. And again, we're only talking about 100 classified documents here. There will still be, there still is a special master. That special master still has to go through the 10,900 other documents. But the way I would phrase it to my client is, with respect to these 100 classified documents, you've lost. Now, either you can accept that and move on, or your only remaining outlet to challenge here is to try to get, get up to the Supreme Court. So do you want to roll the dice with the Supreme Court, or do you want to accept the loss that you took at the 11th Circuit? He's not big on accepting loss. Not sure if you knew that. Ellie Honig, thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate it. Up Thanks, next, Jake. the rescue right. efforts in Florida have now turned into recovery mode. And the White House is responding when pressed today about protests in Iran and President Biden's recent elevated tone. Plus, the calculated pressure campaign at the White House aimed at keeping gas prices down just in time for the midterm election. Stay with us. Now to our national lead, the death toll in the United States from Hurricane Ian is rising to 106. And we're beginning to see the faces of those whom the storm took. Michelle Harris-Miles was in Fort Myers Beach celebrating her 40th birthday. She was in a vacation rental when the storm hit. Water flooding the home pushed her towards the ceiling, which eventually collapsed upon her. Another victim of the storm, Elizabeth McGuire, she was found 
dead in her bed in Cape Coral, clutching her cell phone. These tragedies come as Florida is trying desperately to recover from widespread damage. CNN's Carlos Suarez is in Fort Myers where people are lining up to get that needed aid. The need for help in Florida, immediate. All of our food at the house went back. At one food distribution site in North Fort Myers, the line of cars grew by the hour. The Cajun Navy Foundation on the ground in Florida for days, handing out crucial supplies for residents without basic services. But we got diapers, I know there's water, food. Thousands so far have been rescued from destroyed or flooded homes with harrowing stories of survival. I got pushed away and I went around the building and I was able to find some bushes and I grabbed onto it and I pulled myself in halfway in and um, I just stayed there for hours, hours. State officials working to compile a list of those missing. We hope to have a better number on that uh, going into the next couple of days. Hurricane Ian's death toll now over 100. More than half of those deaths in Lee County where rescuers face large areas of homes, boats and bridges shattered in Ian's wake. We're probably still another three to four days left in search and rescue and recovery. But until we go through the rubble, until we see exactly what we have, we're not certain who's missing and what those numbers will be. County officials identified 46 of the 55 bodies recovered. One of those killed, an Ohio mother celebrating her 40th birthday in Fort Myers, who could not find transportation to leave her vacation rental before the storm. These are not numbers. This is this is family members. For the hardest hit barrier islands, the only way in and out is by air and boat. I just dropped some people off in out their house. I'm just going to get supplies. Emergency officials are racing to build a temporary bridge to connect Pine Island to Cape Coral north of Sanibel. They're delivering tons of gravel as we speak starting yesterday and possibly can have a temporary bridge in place by as of this Saturday. The National Guard and a group of volunteers began an airlift of food and supplies for stranded residents. We've got extensive water damage. School buildings unspared. The Soto County schools say a high school will remain closed for two months. An elementary school in Fort Myers Beach shows desks and debris everywhere. School officials may relocate students, teachers and staff. This is not gonna stop us from opening our schools as soon as we can. Further south, officials in Naples are only beginning to assess entire neighborhoods underwater after the storm surge. I would guess it's probably um, hundreds um, of uh, households that are going to be experiencing um, a period of time when when they're not going to be able to uh, uh, be in their homes. And Jake, preparations are well underway here in southwest Florida for President Joe Biden's visit tomorrow. He's expected to get a look at the damage by air and ground. The White House says he will meet with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and he is going to get a briefing by the governor. The two men are going to be joined on this trip by the FEMA administrator. Jake. All right, Carlos Suarez uh, in Florida. Thank you so much. Today, the Biden administration is pledging to take more action in the wake of these protests in Iran that have been met with violence from the Iranian regime. We're going to go live to the White House next. Topping our world lead as Ukrainian soldiers plant flags in newly re-liberated towns, such as this one near the southern port city of Kherson. 
and ambush their Russian enemies in the east, shown here in this video from Ukraine's military. The United States today announced a new $625 million aid package for Ukraine, which brings the total price tag on USAID to Ukraine close to $17 billion. Let's bring in CNN's Nick Payton Walsh, who's in southern Ukraine for us. And Nick, it has been a remarkable 72 hours for Ukraine. Is Russia even admitting these losses? Uh, to some degree, actually, yes, but there is still a clear disparity between Russia's political messaging, which today went through the rubber stamping of their somewhat ridiculous charade of claiming parts of Ukrainian territory is now officially Russian territory, while at the same time their Russian defence ministry released two, frankly, startling maps. One from Monday which was distinctly different to the one they released today, and today's map showed about a quarter or a third of the territory to the west side of an important river in Ukraine called the Dnieper, on the west side of which Russia still holds quite a lot of territory as part of its occupation. Well, today they admitted they'd lost about a third or even a quarter of that in just the last 24 hours. Now, that's because of consistent Ukrainian advances moving very fast around the areas around Kherson, a town called Davy Brid definitely having been taken. And that adds to the number of places over the last 24 hours that seem to have gone back to Ukrainian hands. Ukraine's pretty tight-lipped about its advances, so they may have gone a bit further than they're admitting publicly but it's a startling thing after this weekend frankly where we saw ourselves in the east in the town of Liman how Russia had been routed from that strategic hub so we now have on two separate fronts here in the east and the south Russian forces in retreat the southern one particularly fast particularly dramatic it's always been a key goal of Ukraine they initially delayed it focusing on the northeast first but now they seem to be going for it properly and those forces are cut off from the rest of uh, Russia's occupying force by that river and therefore in quite significant peril. The fact the Russian Ministry of Defence put those maps out, that may suggest the military are a bit tired of the gloss being put on this by Moscow, consistently talking about annexation, partial mobilisation and about victory. Things are not victorious for Russia at all. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky today passing a decree emulating what he'd said publicly that they weren't going to negotiate with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Well, there's no alternative for him at the moment in Russia. And at the moment, there's no alternative on the battlefield than Ukraine's momentum moving forward, Joe. All right, Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine, thank you so much. Now to Iran and the protests there, which are getting louder and younger. Take a look at this video from a pro-reform Iranian news outlet. Girls in Tehran throwing off their mandatory hijabs. And these brave junior high school students who walked out of class chanting death to the dictator as Iran's supreme leader claims the United States is behind the, quote, riot. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House for us. And Caitlin, President Biden says he's, quote, gravely concerned about the violent crackdowns by the Iranian government on these protesters. Is the White House planning on more concrete action than some sanctions in that statement? Well, they are expecting to do more sanctions this week, Jake. Of course, the full scope of that remains to be seen. In his statement yesterday, President Biden just said we should expect to see action this week. And I am told by a source familiar that that will come in the form of sanctions on law enforcement officials, on those directly involved in the crackdown on these protests that are sweeping Iran, as you've seen. And, Jake, that would come after sanctions already on the morality police in Iran and other actions that the United States has tried to take to try to restore communications there so people can get online, so it can be widespread what is actually happening 
on the ground there. That last part is a bit more of a struggle. But, Jake, it is notable to see the White House speaking out as quickly as they are now because it appears to be a lesson learned from a lot of the officials who are working for the Biden administration that worked for the Obama administration 13 years ago when in 2009 protests were sweeping Iran. And you saw a much different response because officials then were actually hesitant to speak out publicly and back the demonstrators because they were worried, they said, that it would be counterproductive. But then, of course, you see people like Jake Sullivan, who is now the national security advisor here in the Biden administration, administration saying that they basically learned the lesson that it's better to speak out now. It's better to be more forceful and more clear early on about what's happening and about the support that they have for these demonstrators. That's what you've seen President Biden do, as he did at the United Nations in New York. That's what he's done in the statement yesterday. So it remains to be seen what the full scope of these sanctions are going to look like, Jake, and where it goes from there, what kind of effect it has on the negotiations they were trying to put together to revive the Iran nuclear deal. But you are seeing a much different response now than you were back in 2009. Of course, how that actually ends up remains to be seen. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thanks so much. With us now to discuss Iran and more, former Hillary Clinton advisor and author Homa Abedin. Homa, uh, having worked on so many foreign policy issues throughout your political tenure, including at the State Department, I just want to get your reaction to what's going on in Iran. What do you make of the Biden administration's response so far? Well, Jake, um, first of all, I was just happy to hear in the report what Jake Sullivan um, just announced in terms of sanctions. I, like so many millions of people, watched with fury um, when Masa Amini um, was killed, essentially, after being um, in police custody just for not wearing a proper hijab. And I had goosebumps because as somebody who grew up in the Middle East, grew up in Saudi Arabia, I remember days when, as a teenage girl, when I had a little hair showing, um, needing to cover it. And so the notion of the courage and strength that these women are showing um, and, and really the people of Iran are showing is, is, um, is something to uh, just be admired. And this is not, as you know, I think most Americans know, this is not about the hijab law. I mean, women in Iran have been, you know, protesting against the hijab law for, you know, on and off in some way or another for the last 43 years. This is about controlling women, controlling um, the Iranian um, population. And so for me, um, I think it's uh, I'm glad to hear the administration is coming out in force, supporting the demonstrations. Uh, and, um, you know, I I try to envision if we believe that 60% of um, college graduates are women in Iran and 70% uh, are, are STEM graduates. If these women had the freedom to pursue whatever it is they wanted to pursue, uh, the future of this country would be incredible. And um, I was talking to an Iranian-American friend earlier today, and they said this is really about um, the Islamic Republic versus Iranians. And that, to me, is one of the reasons why I think we need to keep talking about Mahsa Amini, keep supporting uh, the protesters and the demonstrations. And this is a spark that will maybe lead to some change, which is clearly much needed. Yeah, let's hope so. And in fact, you write about growing up in Saudi Arabia, um, where women also are forced to cover their hair in in, in your uh, book, uh, Both And, which is I'm holding up the hardcover, but it's now out in, in paperback. You write, the verses in the Quran about modesty were not just about clothing and hair. They pertain to our code of conduct. I knew girls who were automatically expected to cover who didn't even have the choice and others who consciously made the choice themselves. The key is having the choice, uh, unquote. And, and we're seeing increasingly younger women speak up in Iran. What's your message to them? And do you think that progressive women, uh, conservative women, I mean, 
men, uh, you know, should there be more of an uprising in the United States uh, in terms of marching for these girls and women who are so brave in Iran? Well, you thank you for quoting from my book, because the key word that I use in, in every decision I've made in my own is choice. And for so many Muslim girls and women, we often don't have a choice when making decisions, uh, certainly uh, when it comes to hijab. I happen to live in a household or in a community where it, it was a, an individual choice. I had women in my family who chose to wear the hijab. But it is so much more about how your code of conduct is in this world. It's not just about covering your hair. It's much larger than that. People just put it in a box because they don't understand what hijab is. But the other thing I do talk about in my book is no progress is going to be made unless men are at the table. Men are supporting these choices um, uh, for women on behalf of their daughters or raising a whole next generation of young people. You and I both are. And, you know, for me, I have a 10-year-old son, and I want to raise him not just, you know, to respect women, but not fear their power. And so much of this is fearing the potential of women's power. And, you know, I, I think Muslim women... Um, just get put into this box of uh, we are all conservative, we all cover our hair, and we're as diverse in, in the way we think, the way we act, the way we dress as in any other society, religious society or community in the world. Um, let's quickly turn to the midterms, because obviously you worked in the White House in 1998. Historically, the party controlling the White House almost always loses congressional seats in the midterms. Um, the the eight, 1988 midterms were a resounding success for Democrats, I guess, because of the perception by the public that Republicans in Congress were overreaching uh, when it came uh, to, to Clinton, Lewinsky, the Ken Starr, et cetera. Do you see any parallels between the 98 midterms and November's upcoming races, or do you think it's going to be a more traditional result? Well, I think it's a big unknown at this point. I mean, I think the seeing women uh, and, and really uh, just Americans uh, supporting uh, abortion rights in this country after the Supreme, Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe in June, the enthusiasm, the, the um, women registering to vote in record numbers is um, something uh, to be um, not just celebrated, but also continued. I mean, June and, you know, between June and November, that can be a lifetime. Um, but I, uh, I, I'm feeling defiantly optimistic. It's just continuing that enthusiasm and um, hoping that people turn out to vote. It's not just about the noise. There's so much noise. I mean, one of the biggest things between um, <laughs> the 19, uh, you know, the previous, um, at least when I was in the White House, there weren't things like social media. And I think part of the uh, challenge that we have is there's so much noise constantly. It's like, how do you f stay focused on the issues and the work? And it's one of the reasons why we try to support as many candidates who are running for office who are focused on the work and focused on delivering results. All right, Homa Abedin, good to see you as always. The book again, both and out in paperback now. And it's a, it's a fascinating Read In our money lead, Election Day just five weeks away, the Biden administration working overtime to keep gas prices from skyrocketing with a new plan to try to stop Saudi Arabia and other Middle Eastern countries from cutting oil production. CNN's Alex Marquardt and Matt Egan join us. Alex, you're reporting that White House officials are, quote, taking the gloves off. Oh, that's my least favorite metaphor from White Houses. But anyway, according to one U.S. official, to stop this from happening. So tell us what, what you're hearing, what they're planning. Well, that same U.S. official uh, said that the White House, in fact, is panicking. Um, that this is something that they d desperately do not want to happen. Cutting 
oil production means higher oil prices, means higher gas prices. That, of course, is something that the Biden administration does not want to happen right now. So tomorrow, there's this meeting of the oil-producing countries, this cartel known as OPEC, is ostensibly led by Saudi Arabia. Russia is also a member. The United States is not a member. And what we have learned, myself and our colleagues, Natasha Bertrand and Phil Mattingly, is that there is this furious, last-ditch, wide-scale effort to lobby the OPEC-plus oil-producing countries to not cut oil production, that uh, senior members of the Biden administration are reaching out to members of the cartel, including Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, and the United Arab Emirates. The cartel could cut as much as one million barrels a day in production. That would be the biggest cut uh, since since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, this effort is being led by the top Biden administration official for energy, Amos Hochstein. Uh, they've also enlisted the, uh, the top White House official for the Middle East, Brett McGurk. But interestingly, they've also, just to show you how widespread this is, reached out to the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, um, asking her to reach out to, to, to contemporary, to counterparts around the world. And we actually got talking points that the White House sent to Treasury that have very blunt language suggesting uh, that Yellen say some of this to her, to, to her counterparts. Um, they say that this would be a total disaster, would be seen as a hostile act against the United States. Uh, this is very blunt language. The White House says that these were draft talking points and not used. But it does give insight into how nervous they are, Jake. And Matt Egan, this, this comes as gas prices have been inching back up. If oil production is cut, how high could prices go, do you think? Well, Jake, that really all depends on how deep these production cuts are from OPEC and how long they last. But we've already seen hopes for a rescue from OPEC lift U.S. oil prices by $7 a barrel in just the last two days. Goldman Sachs is telling clients that if OPEC goes forward and cuts supply, we could see oil prices go by $13 or $20 higher. And of course, this does mean higher prices for consumer. Gas prices are still down by a dollar nationally from the record set in June, but they are creeping higher. The national average is up by 14 cents in just the last few weeks. Some on the left are already calling for the White House to retaliate against OPEC if they cut production. Uh, Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, he told me that he wants President Biden to retaliate by cutting Saudi Arabia off from aviation parts and also preventing Raytheon and Boeing from selling uh, defense contracts to Saudi Arabia. Ro Khanna said, quote, this is beyond the pale. They are actively fleecing the American people and destabilizing the economy. This is just outrageous. Who do they think they are? Jake, worth noting that gas prices in Ro Khanna's home state of California are rapidly approaching record highs. And this move from OPEC could be enough to push them to fresh all-time highs. All right, Matt Egan and Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the secretly recorded audio that prosecutors say reveals the Oath Keepers' violent plans to try to stop Joe Biden from taking office and keep Donald Trump in office. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, federal prosecutors today unveiling secret recordings of members of the far-right militia the Oath Keepers discussing plans to bring weapons to Washington, D.C. to, quote, fight for then-President Trump. This is the first major evidence in the sedition trial of five members of the extremist group who've been charged for their roles in the deadly capital attack. As CNN's Sarah Sidon reports, prosecutors also showed new video of the defendants from that day, January 6th. FBI Special Agent Michael Palian took the stand as the government's first witness in the seditious conspiracy case against five people affiliated with the Oath Keepers, 
for their alleged roles in the January 6th attack. The agent verified Oath Keeper leader Stuart Rhodes's voice on secretly recorded audio of a planning meeting the far-right militia group held shortly after the 2020 election. The scratchy audio played in federal court where cameras are not allowed. We're not getting out of this without a fight. There's going to be a fight, Rhodes can be heard saying. But let's do it smart and let's do it while President Trump is still commander-in-chief. The recording was the first major piece of evidence prosecutors used to establish the defendants hatched a plan to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power to keep President-elect Joe Biden from taking office months before January 6th. So our mission going to be to go into D.C., but I do want some Oath Keepers to stay outside and stay fully armed and prepared to go in if they have to, Rhodes can be heard saying. Another defendant, Oath Keeper Kelly Meggs, is also heard on the call, prosecutors said. We have been issued a call to action from D.C. This is the moment we signed up for, he's heard saying. Jurors also have heard secretly recorded audio of Rhodes after January 6th, trying to get a message to Trump, they said. My only regret is that they should have brought rifles. We could have fixed it right then and there, Rhodes can be heard saying about the Capitol attack. If he's not going to do the right thing, He's gonna let himself be removed illegally. Prosecutors relied on videos to establish the defendants, some in military combat gear, were at or in the Capitol, including new video of Thomas Caldwell. Today I wipe my ass on Pelosi's doorknob. Prosecutors also zeroed in on a patch Kelly Meggs wore at the Capitol that says, I don't believe in anything, I'm just here for the violence and show jurors messages from a group chat on the Signal app called Friends of Stone, as in Roger Stone. It was the first evidence the jury saw of Rhodes interacting with someone close to President Trump. And in Signal messages to fellow Oath Keepers days after the election, Rhodes wrote, we aren't getting through this without a civil war. Too late for that. Prepare your mind, body, and spirit. Prosecutors say some began planning for violence election night, showing text messages between Meggs and his wife while watching the results roll in. Trump wins Kentucky. I'm so nervous. I'm going to go on a killing spree. Pelosi first. Shut the F up. You're getting me stressed. So there was cross-examination, and in that cross-examination, we heard uh, the defendant's attorney go after the FBI agent who's been taking the stand and who has been confirming all of these videos, basically saying, you can agree with me that all of the stuff that you saw in messages from Oath Keeper leader Stuart Rhodes was actually nothing to do with January 6th, but had to do with November 14th when there was another rally here. And he said, well, I can agree that the messages we saw today uh, were actually relating and leading up to that. And January 6th was never mentioned in this case. Uh, we also heard from Caldwell's attorney, who really went after uh, FBI agent Palian, basically saying to him, look, in the initial case that you had against his client before Rhodes was ever charged, he was thought of as the leader of the Oath Keepers. He was put out there to be someone who was leading this group. Uh, he says not only did he not go into the Capitol like you said he did, but he also didn't do any destruction like you said he did. So you got things wrong. He's tried to point out all the holes in the FBI's initial case before they revised it, Jake. All right, Sarah Seidner, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, an entire California region on alert. The clues giving police reason to believe a string of killings may all be linked to the same person. Stay with us. The national lead now the hunt for a possible serial killer in Northern California. Five people 
have been shot to death between July and September of this year. And now police say two more shootings last year might be linked. CNN's Josh Campbell reports on what might be connections in these cases. A series of homicides is prompting fears of a possible serial killer in Northern California. Six in all, according to police. Police posted this image of a person of interest in the shootings, saying it's unclear whether it's a possible witness or suspect. Five people killed in Stockton were shot between July 8th and September 27th in similar areas, according to police. They're dimly lit. Some are close to an apartment building. They're overshadowed by trees. There are places where there's not a lot of surveillance cameras, which means either this person or person are very lucky with choosing where they're going or they're doing their homework. Now police have linked the Stockton homicides to two early morning shootings in April of last year in nearby Oakland. In those shootings, one man died and the second victim, a 46-year-old woman, survived. We're examining this case um, from every way, every angle. Uh, we don't know if there is one individual or if there is a series of individuals um, that, that are responsible. Police say they're now focusing on key commonalities in all the shootings. It wasn't a robbery. Items aren't being stolen. That They're not talking about any gang activity in the area or anything. It, it's just element of surprise. Tom O'Connor is a retired senior FBI agent who worked the 2002 D.C. sniper manhunt investigation and says police will look for links between all the crime scenes. Transfer evidence is what you bring to a crime scene. And in very, very few cases uh, does a person who's committing a crime not leave something behind. A California town now living with grief and fear. Jerry Lopez visited the neighborhood where his brother Lorenzo was gunned down. My mother and father were just heartbroken from this. I wish I could have watched out for him. And Jake, police aren't saying how these murders are connected. They're keeping that close to the vest. But like so many shootings that you and I have covered, the key clue often comes down to the gun itself. Modern technology allows police to connect bullet fragments to various shootings. Of course, the major question here is even if authorities identify the gun that was used in these shootings, can they find the shooter or shooters before they strike again? Jake. All right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much. Coming up next, the rare warning to people in Japan after a ballistic missile flew over that country, launched by the rogue nation of North Korea. Stay with us. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the captain of the women's national team is, quote, tired and angry. Her response to the report about horrific allegations of sexual, verbal, and emotional abuse of women's soccer players that was essentially ignored by the league for years. Plus, North Korea getting bigger and bolder, sending Japanese commuters scrambling for shelter in the middle of morning rush hour. What is Kim Jong-un up to? And leading this hour, Donald Trump goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in his fight to stop an investigation into his actions. Trump's appeal asking the high court to reverse an appeals court ruling that gave the Justice Department access to review more than 100 classified documents seized from his Mar-a-Lago home during the FBI raid back in August. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez joins us now with this breaking news. And Evan, former President Trump specifically asking the court to ensure that the special master appointed in this case, he, that that special master can access more than 100 documents marked as classified. Why, remind us, why is this so important to him? 
Well, Jake, what he wants is that the special master uh, be able to, to review these documents and possibly share it with his uh, attorney. That's what the, 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 the first judge who had reviewed all these documents or who had uh, looked at his, at his complaint, that's what the judge had ordered, that the special master be allowed to, to not only review these documents, but also uh, to, to, to also potentially, potentially share it with Trump's legal team. Now, uh, this is a technical, very highly technical uh, uh, petition to the Supreme Court. What the Trump team is asking is simply that the Justice Department not be allowed to, to block access to these documents from the special master that the, the, the Trump-appointed judge in Palm Beach had initially uh, appointed to, to uh, oversee all of this, Jake. Uh, what he's not even challenging here is for the Justice Department to be able to continue their criminal investigation. This was a criminal investigation that's reviewing the 100 or so uh, classified documents. He's not even uh, going uh, after that part of the, the, uh, the case. This is really strictly going at this issue that he says the appeals court exceeded its jurisdiction. But look, you can look at the, you can look at this uh, one one way. The, one, the first sentence of his argument goes at the the issue that he says this is an investigation by his uh, political rival and the, the successor, which is of course Joe Biden. All right, Evan Perez, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss this with our team of legal experts, Renato Mariotti. What, what jumps out at you from Trump's emergency legal request? Well, two things. First of all, Jake, the narrowness of the uh, request of the request by Trump. All he's asking for is that the special master review the docs, presumably so that his team can receive them. Uh, he can kind of get early discovery in the case. Uh, and also, I just have to say it's it's the sort of move that on its face is a head scratcher to me. It's not the sort of thing I think most litigants would do in this situation, because, frankly, um, the uh, the uh, re the request by the DOJ was very narrow. It was very well tailored. And the Court of Appeals decision was well-reasoned, and so I, I don't know why this would ordinarily be a, a wise uh, choice of resources by the Trump team. Kerry Cordero, in a, in a separate case, uh, the justices have previously rebuffed Trump's efforts to stop information or documents from being released to the January 6th committee. Do you have any reason to think they would rule differently here? I don't think this should be any different. This is an emergency request. There's not really a good argument laid out, um, at least in what I've read so far in the former president's arguments, um, making a good case for why this should be different, why the court in this case should grant um, an emergency uh, request on this. And really what the Trump team seems to be arguing is that the 11th Circuit um, was out of its bounds to review the district court's decisions, um, which really is not a particularly strong argument. I think there's pretty there's better arguments that the 11th Circuit was well within its authority to do that. And Renata, we, we can't ignore the reality of the U.S. Supreme Court and its status right now. It's under intense public scrutiny. Uh, justices have been taking public snipes at each other uh, all summer. Public opinion on the court approval has plunged. Do you think that will factor at all as they decide whether or not to exceed to Donald Trump's request here that they take up this case? Yeah, I don't think so, uh, Jake. I actually think this is a fairly uh, a safe bet that that uh, either the court won't, uh, will decide not to, to uh, review this at all, uh, or that the court will, uh, which would essentially deny uh, Trump's request, or they will uh, ultimately rule 
against the former president here. I just don't think uh, this is very strong. I, I would have trouble seeing uh, some of the justices like uh, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and others uh, deciding that they wanted to overrule the 11th Circuit uh, in this particular case. So, Kerry, Trump has claimed repeatedly outside court that uh, he may have declassified these documents. Uh, he brings it up in this emergency request. He says, quote, moreover, whether classified or declassified, the documents remain either presidential records or personal records under the Presidential Records Act. We also know that he uh, has said uh, to Sean Hannity that he can uh, declassify a document just by thinking about the document is uh, declassified. Um, what, do you, what do you make of this? What do you think he's doing here? I think the difficulty, and he does, he's the, the, his team cites in this um, brief the executive authority that belongs to a president um, in order to have classification authority and to declassify documents. What the, it continues to ignore is that he is not the president anymore. And so those decisions about whether documents are classified rightly belong to the current executive. And it's the executive branch that is currently claiming that these documents remain classified. Um, there has been nothing that has come out publicly that I have seen that provides any fact indicating that former President Trump actually executed a declassification action while he was the current president. So absent any information like that, there's just not a persuasive argument that he currently has any say over whether these documents are classified or not. And Renata, what does it tell you that Trump is asking the Supreme Court to vacate this ruling by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals made up of, of two judges that he appointed? Yeah, I have to say, Jake, what it tells me is that that decision uh, was not, that I, I called a moment ago well-reasoned. It was well-reasoned uh, analysis by Trump judges and that we can't always assume that uh, the, ju the, the uh, justice, uh, for example, who's appointed by a particular president or the judge who's appointed by a particular president is going to rule in that president's favor. I think the former president may believe that the Supreme Court will rule with him because he appointed a number of the justices there. And I predict that they will follow the path that his appointees on the 11th Circuit did. So, Carrie, what's what's next in this process and how long do you think this could play out? It's hard to say exactly how long. And the the justice who is the circuit justice in this case, Justice Thomas, um, could reject it. He could also refer it to the Kate, to the rest of the court to consider. So it's hard to figure out the timing. Usually an emergency application they would handle promptly. Um, this is off of the regular schedule of the court. So it's not um, a normally docketed case that would uh, take months and months to brief. So it really is in the discretion of the justices. Renato, is there any court precedence that the justices could rely upon in this manner? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, frankly, this is going to re revolve around some pretty technical uh, questions regarding um, uh, the jurisdiction of an appellate court to consider certain orders that are tied together, uh, that are ordinarily not appealable, but are kind of tied together with orders that are appealable. So it's a pretty technical question of law. Uh, I, I think that, it, you know, the, the, the real question here is whether the court even wants to consider this issue at all or whether they'd rather not deal with it. I think a subject that touches on the, the broader question of this, what some critics call the shadow docket. In other words, the, the, non, or the not ordinary way in which a, a Supreme Court can consider issues. All right. Kerry Cordero and Renato Mariotti, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Kim Jong-un doing something he's not done in five years, launching a ballistic missile over Japan. What might that mean for North Korea's missile program and aspirations? Then a bombshell 
in Republican Herschel Walker's Senate campaign. A report claims that the staunch anti-abortion candidate paid a girlfriend to get an abortion. How the campaign is responding today. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, North Korea caused terror throughout Japan earlier this morning when the rogue regime launched a ballistic missile over Japanese airspace. This is the first time in five years that the North Koreans have been bold enough to fly a missile over their neighbors to the east. And it's the most recent of 23 North Korean missiles conducted this year. The U.S. has condemned today's launch. President Biden spoke with Japan's prime minister today and reiterated his, quote, ironclad commitment to Japan's defense. But as CNN's Will Ripley reports, this surprise missile test comes amid a deeply unsettling time for the region. Across Japan, a chilling and familiar sound. From Hokkaido in the north to the streets of central Tokyo, Tuesday began with an ominous emergency message. An incoming missile from North Korea, minutes away. Many heard a similar warning five years ago, in 2017, the last time North Korea launched a missile over Japan. This time, it flew more than 20 minutes, passing Japanese airspace at 17 times the speed of sound. The missile traveled more than 2,800 miles, farther than any of this year's 23 missile tests. Japan calls it an act of violence. And I think what it tells us is the North Koreans are in no mood to talk. They're in the mood of testing and blowing things up. Why? Well, I think the North Koreans tried their hand at diplomacy in the Trump administration. They didn't get what they wanted. Now, an unprecedented testing binge, accelerating ever since U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris visited the heavily armed DMZ, dividing North and South Korea. In the North... We see a brutal dictatorship, rampant human rights violations, and an unlawful weapons program that threatens peace and stability. Kamala Harris at the DMZ said, we call for complete denuclearization from this brutal dictatorship. It sounds like the same language they've been using for years. Absolutely. Uh, denuclearization is now, uh, I think, in the dustbin of history uh, as, a, as a failed policy. Uh, there's simply no practical plan at this point, uh, especially in the short term, to bring North Korea to the negotiating table and to pursue denuclearization. A crisis that just got even more real. Last week, South Korea, the U.S. and Japan held anti-submarine exercises, the first of their kind in five years. Hours after Tuesday's launch, the U.S. and South Korea staged a precision bombing exercise, a cycle analysts say will likely escalate in the coming months. What can we expect between now and then? Well, there's a lot of things that North Korea is going to do, I think, in the next few months. We're probably going to see a nuclear weapons test. Experts say instead of calling for denuclearization, the focus now should be on risk reduction, preventing a crisis from spiraling out of control. And that is a very dangerous possibility, given that Kim Jong-un appears, according to analysts, to have completely abandoned diplomacy for now after things fell apart uh, with the former president, Donald Trump. And what they showed the world without even saying it with this missile test, Jake, is that their, their missile, by traveling more than 2,800 miles, it can easily hit, among other territories, Guam, which is only 2,100 miles 
from North Korea. Remember, Guam is a territory that North Korea threatened a number of years ago at the last time the tensions were ratcheting up like this. Yeah. Well, Ripley reporting from Taipei, Taiwan. Thank you so much. Let's get right to this uh, with uh, former FBI senior intelligence advisor and CIA counterterrorism official Phil Mudd joining us live. So, Phil, um, why now? Why would North Korea choose this moment to fire this missile? Let me give you a couple snapshots, Dave. If you go back to a few years ago when we were looking at, at missile shots from the North Koreans, Kim Jong-un, a man with a great deal of ego, a man who's got to prove himself to his own national security apparatus, a man who wants to play on the international stage which, with people like China, Russia, United, United States. Years ago, between 2018 and 2019, he had a series, a handful of meetings with the Chinese premier and the famous meetings, of course, with Donald Trump. Fast forward to 2022, you've got the pandemic, you've got inflation, you've got war in Ukraine with subtle threats from Putin about nuclear activity, and North Korea is off the map. So if you're an egotistical leader, one of the things you might do is to say the thing to get me on the map, the thing that makes people pay attention is missiles and nukes. And that's what you got, Jake. Let's show uh, our viewers a map of this missile's trajectory. Normally, North Korea's test missiles splash down west of Japan. This one went much farther uh, posing a threat to, to populated areas, shipping lanes, other aircraft. It would stand to reason that North Korea could learn a lot about its own capabilities with such a long flight path. What do you think they learned from this? There's a lot of things they would learn. I would be more interested in what we learned. So let me put two and two together. Number one, they're going to learn about the deployment of the missile. If this is a new type of missile, did it operate as previous missiles have, have operated? Have they had failures in the past? And did they learn about the difference between those failures and this success? They're going to learn from the ballistics of the missile about what it, how far it went and how far they expected it to go. They're going to learn about precision. So there's a lot they're going to learn. And, and as I said, I think we're going to be learning some of the same things. In addition to, did we get warning? How much warning did we get? What was the deployment compared to other deployments we've seen? How capable are, are we of intercepting a missile like this? I know this is a bad news day, Jake. If you're an intel, this is a gold mine. What does what happened today tell you about Kim's ambitions for his country's weapons development? I presume just that he's going to keep doing it because it's the only way he feels he gets any respect and attention. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a realist, you're going to hear, hear a bunch of fantasies from Democrats and Republicans in this country about what they can do about programs in places like North Korea and Iran. Let me tell you, there's not much they can do. So going back to where we started, if Kim wants to continue to prove that he's a military player who can deter the Japanese, the South Koreans and the Americans, in his eyes, this is simple. I can't deter him just with conventional military. I got to have missiles and nukes. And furthermore, psychologically, if he wants to be a big man on campus, the only way you can be a big man is with nukes. So from his shoes, this makes perfect sense, Jake. Phil Mudd, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A new report claiming Thanks. Georgia Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker, who is a staunch anti-abortion advocate, a report that he paid a girlfriend in order so she could afford an abortion is shocking the race. Herschel Walker strongly denies it. But now one of Herschel Walker's sons is speaking out about this latest claim against his father. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a blockbuster report from the Daily Beast could possibly upend the all-important Senate race in Georgia. Republican Herschel Walker is denying the story from the Daily Beast that he paid for an abortion for a woman he was dating in 2009. He's calling the story a flat-out lie. 
The Daily Beast would not name Walker's accuser, but says that this happened in 2009 and that she showed the reporters a receipt from an abortion clinic and a $700 check from Walker, as well as a signed Get Well card from him. The former former football star has been a vocal abortion opponent on the campaign trail and has said he supports well, a ban on the procedure know. with no exceptions for any reason. And as CNN's Manu Raji reports, Republicans are rallying behind Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker's Senate campaign now reeling, upended by an explosive report alleging that the staunch anti-abortion Republican paid for a girlfriend to get the procedure for a child they conceived 13 years ago. I never paid for an abortion, and it's a lie. Walker stayed behind closed doors on Tuesday, with his aides refusing to disclose his schedule, even after they initially agreed to say where he would campaign this week. CNN, however, did obtain an invitation to an event hosted by prayer warriors for Herschel at a Baptist church in Atlanta. But CNN was not allowed to cover the event or wait in the parking lot, even as a leading conservative activist, Ralph Reed, came outside to defend the candidate. I will promise you this. The voters of Georgia are going to reject this kind of gutter politics. Can you tell Herschel Walker to actually come out here and answer these questions himself? This is a closed event. It's a prayer event with faith leaders. According to the Daily Beast, Walker in 2009 reimbursed his then-girlfriend $700 for the cost of the abortion. The woman was not named, and CNN has not verified the report. But the Daily Beast reported obtaining a bank deposit slip with a copy of Walker's personal check and a get well card signed by H, telling the woman, pray you are feeling better. I send out so many get well, uh, send out so much of anything, but I can tell you right now, I never asked anyone to get an abortion. One of Walker's sons, Christian Walker, lashing out publicly against his father. Don't lie on the lives you've destroyed and act like you're some moral family man. While Walker tweeted, I love my son no matter what. Can you respond to Christian Walker saying this is a lie, sir? I, I gave my statement. Like so many battleground states, the Supreme Court's decision to strike down Roe v. Wade, putting abortion front and center especially for suburban women. Abortion is certainly a driving issue uh, for me. Senator Raphael Warnock, the Democratic incumbent, tapping into the issue at a campaign event outside of Atlanta. The patient's room is too small and cramped a space for a woman, her doctor, and the United States government. That's just too many people in the room. But the freshman Democrats sidestepping questions about the story's impact on the race. Senator, do you believe the Daily Beast story? I honestly haven't had a chance to, to look at it. Warnock and his allies have already spent $76 million on ads here, about $10 million more than the GOP, attacking Walker's complicated past. But Republicans are hoping Warnock's ties to an unpopular President Biden and concerns over inflation and crime... Raphael Warnock, he chose felons over Georgia families. ...will be enough to overcome Walker's problems. I don't agree with Warnock's philosophy. Walker keeping Biden at an arm's length. You think Joe Biden should run for re-election? Part of the problem in American politics is too much of the conversations about the politicians. 
Now, major Senate Republican groups are rushing to Walker's defense, including a super PAC linked to Mitch McConnell, which plans to spend more than $20 million in the final weeks of the campaign. The National Republican Central Committee also planning to spend big. On the Democratic side, a group linked to Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, plans to release an ad tomorrow attacking Walker for support for a total abortion ban. And for Walker himself, he threatened to sue as early as this morning a lawsuit against the Daily Beast over that article. But as of now, no lawsuit has been filed. Yeah, we'll see if he actually files that lawsuit. Manu Raju, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my august panel. And I have to say, Zola, let me start with you. One of the reasons, I think it's fair to say, one of the reasons this story uh, seems to have had legs is because Walker's son, Christian, who's, who's 23 years old and has been a, an outspoken influencer and, and a Trump supporter, went to a campaign event for his dad, he, he went online uh, and social media and talked about it. Here's a little bit more of what he had to say. I was saying lie after lie after lie. The abortion card drops yesterday. It's literally his handwriting in the card. They say they have receipts, whatever. He gets on Twitter. He lies about it. Okay, I'm done. Done. Everything has been a lie. Don't lie on my mom. Don't lie on me. Don't lie on the lives you've destroyed and act like you're some moral family man. Y'all should care about that. Conservatives. We should note that Christian uh, considers himself to be a conservative. Do you think um, do you think that's going to have any impact on the race? I mean, this is what we're watching for now. There was the initial Daily Beast report that obviously has its findings in there. But then you also have uh, Herschel Walker's son, a member of the family, coming and basically alleging hypocrisy, calling to question the image of a family man that has these values. Let's also remember the Republicans as a party at this point haven't really been able to form a consistent message since uh, the leak of the Roe decision, let alone the actual decision. Um, talking to some Republicans on the Hill, they'd much rather talk about the economy, talk about immigration, talk about crime. With this report, as well as his son's post on social media, not only are you now forced to talk about this issue that they haven't found a consistent message on, but also be on their kind of heels and now defend a candidate who has talked about Lindsey Graham's proposed 15-week ban as well, something that many Republicans have tried to avoid yeah. um, at times as well. So it really brings an issue that we have yet to see a consistent message on now back into the limelight uh, rather than some of the other points of criticism against Democrats they would like to be talking about. So, David, uh, Herschel Walker wouldn't talk to Manu Raju, but he did go on Sean Hannity's show to, to deny the allegation and try to explain the get well card and the check. Uh, let's watch a little bit of that. I send out so many get well, uh, send out so much of anything. But I can tell you right now, I never asked anyone to get an abortion. I never paid for an abortion. And it's a lie. What about the $700 check? Is there anybody you can remember sending that much money to? Well, I, I send money to a lot of people. Do you think that's going to cut it? Eh, probably not. I remember I remember a Access Hollywood tape that was probably far worse than that. And the guy got elected president. So. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold your breath that this is going to take down Herschel Walker. I think that um, that uh, the Biden administration's numbers, you know, as we know, in the low 40s, high 30s, low 40s, right track, wrong track. Those those kitchen table issues um, affect people directly. I think that's going to play a bigger role here. And I think that the governor's race, um, you know, the Kemp Abrams race is going to play a big role here, too. I think that the that Kemp is winning by such a large margin that that boat, that rising tide may lift that Herschel Walker boat. Just enough to get across the finish line. And Alencia, speaking of that Access Hollywood uh, video, um, 
Donald Trump released a statement in support of Herschel Walker, who we should know was like kind of his handpicked candidate in the Georgia Senate race. It, Trump says uh, it, partly uh, Herschel Walker is being slandered and maligned. Herschel has properly uh, de- denied the charges against him, and I have no doubt uh, he's correct. And it seems as though right now Republican leadership is rallying around Trump and Herschel Walker. I mean, they're going to, whether or not they believe it's right, whether or not they are enjoying this October surprise that is causing a lot of humor on Twitter. But the reality is their voters are going to vote for him. Their voters sent him to the general election and they are following Trump. And so Republicans have to get in line with how their voters are voting. And unfortunately, this is what they're voting for, sadly. Right. I feel like the one political lesson that Republicans may have learned from the Access Hollywood episode is that politically it is better just to stick through with stand by your candidate. Because if you recall, some of the Republicans who did shun Trump in that era, they were actually punished by voters and did not win or did not win re-election. And some of the Republicans I've talked to today, they feel that if you were if you were someone in Georgia who was who was voting on abortion, that so this would really be important to you, you probably weren't voting for Herschel Walker anyway. So in terms of the actual impact in terms of voters, certainly it's a huge story. Certainly the substance of what is being reported here are serious. But in terms of how much it moves the needle, I think it's still very early to tell. Let's t- turn to another uh, key center race in Pennsylvania. The Republican Jewish Coalition uh, has released a new ad targeting black voters in favor of Republican nominee Dr. Oz uh, against uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, an incident involving him when he was mayor of Braddock in 2013. Let's watch. They may have broken the law. They may have broken the law. That's what John Fetterman said after he chased down an unarmed, innocent black man and held him at gunpoint. Now this guy wants to be in the Senate? Are you serious? My message to black voters, do your homework about John Fetterman. So, I I mean, I I think that it's possible that the Herschel Walker story could suppress uh, turnout among Christian conservatives, especially women. This this ad's aimed at black voters. It's from the Republican Jewish Coalition. It's aimed at black voters, clearly aimed at discouraging blacks uh, from voting for uh, Fetterman or, or maybe even turning out to vote. Yeah, no, it's something that we reported earlier this year, too, that there were Democrats that were nervous even earlier this year that this would eventually be seized on in an ad just like that. The one thing that I thought was interesting, that same group that put that out, they did do some surveys and release data that showed still there's a, a slim a minority of, of, of voters, including black voters, who say that they are familiar with this 2013 incident. However, when they did actual means testing, there was a view that there was a negative view over it as well. So it will be interesting looking forward to see just how this has an impact. Can I just say, though, to that, this is the Republican Party playbook, mm-hmm. this race baiting, a, a, a party who does nothing for black voters, but yet they will use an ad like this to try to dissuade black voters from voting against their opponent. Let's be clear, Fetterman, like he's talked about this, this incident. He was mayor of a majority of black town, and so he does have support, and it's very clear that this is literally just to chip off the black vote in Pennsylvania. Yeah, but come on. If that was if that was Mehmet Oz that hold a shotgun to a black jogger in Pennsylvania, it would be it would be much bigger deal. John Fetterman was given an opportunity. Malcolm Kenyatta gave him an opportunity to address it in a debate in the primary. In the yeah. primary debate, gave him a chance to come clean, talk about it, and he didn't say anything. He didn't say he didn't say hey, I was it's wrong. Their playbook, though, they he haven't presented. John any, Fetterman had a chance to say he was wrong to help black communities could, in Pennsylvania. Well, well, okay. so. He could have said he was wrong. Fetterman didn't say he was wrong. He should have apologized. Sung Min, um, we know that Fetterman is also uh, quick out there with uh, ads right. and uh, special on social media. Here's, a, here's an ad uh, taking aim at Mehmet Oz's credibility as a doctor, comparing him to a character on The Simpsons, one of my favorites, uh, Doctor Nick. <laughs> 
With my diet, you can eat all you want, any time you want. And you'll lose weight? Uh, you might. It's a free country. I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. Lose fat without diet or exercise. Stubborn stomach fat instantly disappears. I recommend a slow, steady gorging process combined with acyl horizontology. Garcinia Cambogia extract. Crystal sinic therapy. C. Buckthorn. I mean, we, Oz has made his medical background right. the centerpiece of his campaign. His banners are emblazoned with Dr. Oz. His campaign slogan is Dose of Reality. But we should note his credentials have been called into question many, many times over the years, including uh, by members of Congress. The Washington Post sat with a story about Oz's promotion of weird, perhaps even fraudulent uh, products. What do you think about this? Right. So the the... The big Democratic message, especially from Federer's campaign as it relates to Oz, has been two points. One, that he actually lives in New Jersey, which I'm sure does not help in Pennsylvania. And also that he's kind of this snake oil salesman type of quack doctor, as we kind of saw in that ad. Uh, they've been at this for a while, obviously is a liability that the Oz campaign recognizes. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, Fetterman has been on that on that message for some time. But you see the race tightening yeah. a mm-hmm. lot, a fair, fairly so. I think it's I think it's pretty obvious that Republican voters were probably going to come home before Election Day. So it's naturally going to tighten. But is that message actually working? I think. It, it's still uh, to be seen. All right. Thanks one and all for being here. Really appreciate it. By Landon, by CCNN, rides along as rescuers go boat to boat to see if any Hurricane Ian survivors are trapped inside. Stay with us. International lead, more than 100 Floridians dead, others missing, homes destroyed, power out, billions of dollars in damage. Those are the realities still facing Florida almost a week after Hurricane Ian pummeled that state. CNN's Leila Santiago joins a search and rescue team looking for people who might be trapped on boats. By land, by water, the search continues across the hard-hit area of Lee County, Florida, after the wrath of Hurricane Ian left behind destruction and devastation. With more than 100 deaths blamed on Ian so far, 55 are reported in this county alone. This is Central Florida Task Force 4, a search and rescue team out of Orlando here to help. Their mission, get to the mangroves on the barrier island of Sanibel, cut off when its bridge collapsed to search for anyone on a boat in need. There's a large population of commercial shrimp vessels and um, mooring fields where people live on sailboats and cabin cruisers year-round. And many of those people, you know, will ride out a storm on their boat. That's their home. Many of those vessels have been pushed deep into the mangroves in an inaccessible area. So we are taking the smaller boats that we can to get back in these backwater areas and make sure they're clear. These are the boats that will carry in the search and rescue teams. They'll go about 45 minutes that way near Sanibel into the mangroves to find boats. And this is what they're coming across, mangled boats in tough-to-reach areas. The inaccessibility is probably the greatest challenge we have. So this is the bridge to Sanibel. This is usually where they would move people and supplies, but you can see it's collapsed over here, and the road just completely caved in right over here by the water. But tomorrow, for the first time since the storm, residents of Sanibel will be allowed to get back on the island by private boats to inspect their property. Not the case for those who live on Fort Myers Beach. They were ordered to leave the barrier island with no guarantee of when they'll be allowed to return. Corinne Gulshan was dropped off here by Lee County officials where friends and families are reuniting with their loved ones who rode out the storm. Shock, this disbelief that such a massive storm came through here, you know. 
we were warned. We knew it was going to be big. You know, we made that choice to stay. My island of paradise is gone as I knew it. And as we approach a week since this tragic hurricane hit, many are holding out hope. We're strong people. We'll get through it and we'll rebuild and come back. And you know, Jake, uh, you heard him talk about the shrimping vessels in there. I'm in a fishing community. You can see the boats kind of piling up right behind me. If you talk to people here, they will express frustration and, and, and are eager to get everything cleaned up to move on and rebuild because not only do they want to get this area cleaned up, but the economic impact here of them not being able to get those boats back on the water and get back to work. All right, Lila Santiago in Fort Myers Beach, Florida. Thank you so much for that report. Athletes are speaking out after multiple allegations of sexual, verbal, and emotional abuse at the top levels of women's soccer. Coming up next, we're going to talk to a former player on one of the teams that fired its coach. Stay with us. In our sports lead, outrage over a long list of failures to protect players within the National Women's Soccer League, an independent investigation into the league found a culture of systemic abuse that was protected by silence and fear of retaliation, ultimately allowing these women to be verbally abused and subjugated to sexual misconduct. Just a short while ago, the captain of the women's national soccer team, Becky Sobron, spoke out. We are horrified and heartbroken and frustrated and exhausted and really, really angry. We are angry that it took a third-party investigation. I want to bring in former professional soccer player uh, Joanna Lohman. Joanna, what's your reaction to all this? I'm just disgusted. I'm disgusted that it's taken close to a decade, systematic failure Mm -hmm. after failure, to find us in this spot now. And the lies and the deceit. It wasn't just a culture of silence. It was actually a culture of cover-up. And as a player who played in the league for 16-plus years, I've seen it with my own eyes, we knew this stuff was going on. There was the, uh, the silence, but now I know they were actively covering this up. And it wasn't until we had the authentic leadership of the players themselves who brought this forward, who had on October 6, 2021, the moment where they all came together and locked arms, stop the game canceled games in the league that were finally being told the truth. So I feel very, I feel lied to. Yeah. And it's a shame that it took the players to bring this change about. Before retiring in 2019, you played for the Washington Spirit. Uh, Richie Burke was the head coach from 2018 until he was fired in 2021 for violating the league's anti-harassment policy. He was also one of several coaches named in the report, quote, One Spirit employee described Burke's treatment of players as, quote, battered wife syndrome, where Burke would, quote, lose his shit one day and then apologize the next. Players described the same dynamic. Uh, Burke's been, Burke's denying being verbally abusive to his players, but you you briefly played on his team right before you retired. What was your experience with him? It was an incredibly volatile environment. It was a toxic culture on the team where you would show up and you wouldn't know what version of Richie you would get. He would call players' names, he would erupt during practice. And as athletes who already are struggling because of low pay, of the resources that we get, to have to come to work every day and feel scared to be your authentic self, to be scared to show up and to make a mistake, is just a toxic culture where you're never going to get the best out of athletes. And 
I, f- I feel sad for these players that they've lived so long in these types of cultures. So l- let me just, if there's any viewer out there who's wondering something, and I just want to play devil's advocate yeah. here. Obviously, there's no justification or excuse for sexual harassment, sexual assault. Let's put that aside. What is the difference between a tough coach yeah. and, a, and a, an abusive coach? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and I'm so glad that you asked it because a tough coach gives you feedback in a way that you want to be better for that coach. A coach that abuses you, um, again, will break you down as an athlete. I think that type of leadership, that type of coaching is archaic, Jake. We don't need people to break us down to build us back up again. Because when you break someone down, you're losing trust with that athlete. A great coach will build trust between them and the player and they will give them constructive feedback to make them better as opposed to breaking them down. And you're never afraid to show up to practice when you have a coach that you know is going to be the person that drives you to develop and grow and get better. You're never afraid to show up at training. And the report also describes how this cultural of abuse and worse is happening in youth leagues with girls. How is this possible that it's being normalized? You have all, you know... Kids have systems of protectors, teachers and gym teachers and parents and siblings. How, how is it possible? Jake, I work a lot with youth athletes now, and I see a lot of coaches. And you see them on the sideline stalking up and down and screaming and joysticking our kids, telling them where to be every single moment. And it's outrageous to me that these types of coaches get to lead our kids And they grow up in a situation where this is normalized, that you learn that leadership is through abuse. Leadership is through yelling. And that is not at all what these kids should be learning in sport. Sport has the power to teach incredible lessons. And sadly, we've reached a point where so many coaches feel like screaming at kids is the way to teach them something. And so from a young age, they learn this. And so when they get older, we've seen this in NWSL, they don't realize when it's abuse. They think, oh, it's just the coach being coach. And so it's swept under the rug. They're not believed, right? They're afraid to speak up because they don't realize how bad this behavior actually is. So what now? When there was a scandal involving the girls uh, and women's gymnastic team of the Olympics, I mean, one of the problems was that the whole system, USA Gymnastics, uh, U.S. Olympic Committee, like there were so many complicit people throughout the entire uh, system uh, what about national? What about women's soccer? What, what needs to happen? You do see a lot of complicit actors in this investigation that have allowed this to continue for so long. I think we need uh, more jurisprudence. We need uh, better hiring processes to make sure we're getting the right people as our coaches. We need policies, Jake. We didn't have any policies until recently, until 2021 recently for the NWSL in place that if a coach is abusing or harassing a player, they have a safe space to verbalize this. They feel like they're going to be listened to. There's going to be reconciliation. And then after the fact, right, we see these coaches, the, the worst thing that's happened to them is a, is a bad report, right? They've lost their coach's license. There really hasn't been any legal ramifications for these coaches who have ruined lives. So it has to be policies before, during, and after that allow these players to show up and feel psychologically safe to be the best athletes that they can be. Joanna Loman, thank you so much. Yeah, really appreciate your time today. Good to have you. We'll be right back. We close tonight remembering a country music legend whom we just lost 
Loretta Lynn. When I was born to coal miner's daughter. Born to poverty in Kentucky, Loretta Lynn found her voice winning a singing competition that would ignite her meteoric rise to stardom. She often wrote about her tumultuous marriage in songs such as You Ain't Woman Enough and Fist City. Loretta Lynn, 90 years old. May her memory be a blessing. Our coverage continues with Pamela Brown in for Wolf Blitzer, right next door in the Situation When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 